Hi, my name is Malcolm Duncan and I want to thank you for stopping by the Thin Places podcast. Whether you're exploring faith or seeking to deepen your faith, my prayer is that as you listen, it will be a blessing to you. Please make sure that you click or subscribe to the podcast to be kept up to speed with all the latest episodes. I'd love you to take a look at some of my other resources that are available on the internet too. You can go to my Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Rev Malcolm Duncan for daily updates and reflections. You can visit my webpage, malcolmduncan.co.uk, where you can order books and listen to some other resources and link to my written blog. And lastly, you can take a look at my YouTube channel, which has some videos of me speaking in various contexts and some biblical exposition, as well as some videos of me exploring contemporary topics and issues. Thanks very much for stopping by, and I pray that God would richly bless you. Welcome to episode 13 of the Good Grief podcast series entitled Death's Defeat and Shared Sorrow, Giving God Our Grief and Loss. If all that I've said thus far is true, then why do we still face death with heartbreak and sorrow? At the beginning of the last episode, I introduced four key issues that I wanted to explore around death from John chapter 11. I've set out my thinking on the first three already. Lazarus's resurrection has changed my understanding of death. It has changed what I understand about death and the believer, and it has changed my own relationship with life and death. In this episode, I want to turn my attention to the fourth question. Why do believers go through death and loss? To answer that, we return to John 11 and one of the most challenging and powerful descriptions of Jesus. As I read the story of John 11 again, I was drawn to the deep emotional state of Jesus. It's most clearly articulated in the Bible's shortest verse, John 11:35, that says Jesus began to weep. That display of deep affection and emotion has touched me from the very first time I read it as a new Christian back in the 1980s. The Son of God wept. When I read the wider context of his tears, I began to think about why he was so moved. John 11.33 says, When Jesus saw her, that's Mary, weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. In verse 38 he says, When Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. In my own translation of these verses, I have replaced greatly disturbed with very agitated in his spirit and stirred up in himself. As I read John 11 carefully and slowly, there was no doubt in my mind that Jesus' display of emotion was related to the pain and to the stress of his friends. But there's also no doubt in my mind that there was something else going on here too. Why was he weeping so deeply if he knew he was going to resurrect his friend? And why would Mary's sorrow cause him troubled agitation at such a deep level? And why would the text mention that Jesus noticed the mourners around her in verse 33 and their rather accusatory comments? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Verse 37 of John 11 says, I think there are other significant layers of meaning in these descriptions of Jesus that are important, incredibly important, for understanding why Lazarus died and therefore for understanding why believers die. 
In all of this, it's important, I think, to remember the words of Jesus to Mary and the arguments that I set out in the last episode of Good Grief. Followers of Christ pass through death, but they do not stay dead. When we are in relationship with God through Christ, we have eternal life, and that cannot be taken away from us. So walk with me in this episode through what I think the text is saying and what it might be teaching us. The spectators in verse 37 were right. Jesus did have the power to prevent Lazarus from dying, but he chose not to. That reality is at least partly what causes the distress and the agitation that Jesus is feeling, I would suggest. The sentiment is hidden behind the way in which John opens the story too. The sisters sent a message to Jesus because they knew he could intervene and stop this heartbreak from happening. It's also hidden behind the disappointment expressed by Martha in verse 31 and Mary in verse 32 about Jesus' late arrival in Bethany. It's also what lies behind the hopeful assertion of Martha that even now, verse 22, God would grant Jesus what he wanted. The pain of letting Lazarus die and the reasons for it are what I think were causing the distress and agitation shown by Jesus. Not only that, but he is deeply troubled by the pain and the distress themselves. He's distressed because his friends and the wider community are distressed, but he is troubled because he has the power to raise Lazarus from the dead. That, in fact, is what he has come to do. But he knows that his timing is causing the pain and the distress that the community, particularly the sisters, are facing. He's also distressed because the criticisms and judgments pronounced by the sisters and by the community are right. I don't mean that he regrets his timing or that he feels he's made a mistake in any way. What I mean is that he knows that his timing has caused them distress and that his lack of intervention thus far has caused them pain and confusion. I also think that Jesus is deeply troubled by the impact that death itself has on people. He sees the pain of death and mourning and the cost of separation here in this story in the faces of his two friends, Mary and Martha, and in the cries and the questions of the crowd, and it pains him. We were not made for death, we were made for life. And here in this story, death is doing what death does, destroying life. It is eating away at the hope of two sisters, eroding their confidence and their faith in God and separating them from their Messiah. Jesus is pained by what death does here because Jesus is always pained by what death does. So he should be. His distress is in empathy and sympathy with the sisters at the profoundest of levels. I hate what death does. I hate death. It's a liar. It's a cheat. And it is a destroyer of worlds, to use a famous quote. It tries to consume our joy, eat away at our sense of connectedness, shatter our relationships, fracture our world and destroy our hope. I never want to get used to it. I never want to affirm it. I never want to be the pastor that celebrates it. We talk too much, I think, of embracing death, welcoming death and all of that nonsense. We're not to do this. Death is our enemy and we should hit it. Only in the hands of God can death be redeemed. Only when Jesus is at the centre of how it plays out in our lives can death make any sense. And all the ideas and philosophies and euphemisms and softenings and metaphors are pointless unless we know that there is a way through this pain. And this is what Jesus sees in the lives of Mary and Martha. He sees the pain of death, the destruction of it, 
the way it strangles hope and kills life. He looks at the crowd and hears them weep and mourn and accuse. He knows what he's about to do, but in these moments before that great miracle, he weeps. He trembles with emotion and with anger. He is deeply moved at the pain that loss brings. He reacts to death in the same way that we do, except with sovereignty and with resolve. And by so doing, he gives us permission to hate death, to rage against the night, to cry out in pain and anguish and despair and to articulate all the confusion and the mourning and the loss in our hearts. And I think that's remarkable. As I began to understand this sense of solidarity with me in grief about my dad, the pain just started to pour out. I remember falling to my knees in my study and beating the floor in pain. Oh my God. He not only understood, he permissioned this release of sorrow. He entered into the pain of mourning and loss with Mary and Martha and the crowd. But he also acknowledged the confusion and the heart sorrow that it brings. He redeemed it. The gut-wrenching, soul-piercing cry of loss that I felt was okay. It was okay. It was okay. Looking back now across the years since that realisation is very painful. The involuntary yell that left me when my nephew died. The uncontrollable sadness that consumed me when my mum died. The devastation when my brother died. The anger when my brother-in-law died. The soreness I felt recently when carrying a little white coffin, it is all permitted. All of it is what I am supposed to feel. Jesus didn't come to bring death, he came to bring life. And here, in this story, as he witnesses the power and the destruction of death, he gets mad at hell. He is angry with death. Well, do you know what? So am I. So is every person that has been forced to walk down its dark corridors. The heartbroken, the mourning and the sad. We are a company of the bereft and the broken. And our captain knows how we feel. He permissions it. He opens the door for it. That is how he comforts those who mourn. This is how he redeems our pain. He opens the door of our souls and he lets it out. He unlocks the cell of our fears and anxieties and confusions. He gives us a space to grieve, a place to put our pain. But the only way he can do it is by letting someone die and then bringing them back. This is at the heart of this story. Jesus needed to show the world that he had power over death. He needed to demonstrate that what lies beyond the boundary of life is eternal life, not death for those who trust him. And the only way he could do that was to let someone die and then bring them back. There's something different about this story of resurrection, wrecked resurrection compared to the widow of Nain's story in Luke 7, 11 to 17 and Jairus' daughter's story in Luke 8, verses 40 to 56. The widow of Nain's son was a demonstration of restoration for someone who had lost everything. Jairus' daughter was an immediate answer to a desperate prayer, but with Lazarus, it was a slow response. Jesus delayed. He waited. He was saying something about death itself. A boy, a girl and a friend. All brought back. But the friend? Why the friend? Why Lazarus? That brings me to the heart of the sorrow in the Lazarus story. And perhaps 
to the heart of my own understanding of why I have faced pain. Jesus needed to show the world he had power over death and the only way he could do it was by letting someone die and then bringing them back. Who could do this for him? Who could he lay this heavy, heartbreaking load on? His friends. His closest friends. He knew the cost and so, even as he lets them go through it, he breaks his heart. Even as he permits death to seep into Mary and Martha's home, he feels the pain and the sorrow of it with them and for them. He knows that this demonstration of his power, this manifestation of his glory, look at verses 4 and 14 to 15 and 42, costs something profound of those who will endure it. And he knows that it will require an even profounder trust. He knows that his ways will confuse him, will confuse them and that they will feel abandoned and let down. But this is the way that he will show the crowds, the watching world and us, that he is who he says he is. This is how he demonstrates that he is the resurrection and he is life. He asks his friends to suffer loss so the world can see that he can overcome loss. His way for them is a cross-bearing, painful and devastating way because he knows they can trust him. The world will only know that he is who he claims to be when they see his work in them. And he asks his friends to trust him in the face of death. This revelation, this discovery, this part of the story has impacted me more than anything else. Jesus asks me to go through heartbreak and pain and loss because it's the only way that the world can see that he can be trusted. I'll say more of that in the next episode as we explore how God transfigures our pain. But I want to reflect on this hard invitation to allow God to use our lives to demonstrate his love to the world. I don't think God caused my pain, but I know he could have stopped it. I don't think he decided to kill the people that I loved. I struggle with theologies that portray the sovereignty of God in such stark, sterile and heartless terms. I think one of the consequences of the losses in my life has been a change in my view of sovereignty. Oh, I believe in God's sovereign purposes and plans, don't get me wrong. I believe that he's omnipotent, omniscient and omnipresent. But I'm more than able to live with the mystery of these things. More able now than I once was. My understanding of God's sense of time, purpose and plans around the beginning and the end of life is less boxed up than it used to be. Sorrow and death have forced me away from the clichés of certainty. They've lifted my eyes from a rational, intellectualised view of God's ultimate purposes toward a more relational and compassionate understanding. And they've taught me to trust him, even when I don't understand him. Somehow seeing the face of Jesus as he looked at the scene in Bethany has helped me, I think. He didn't look at it with sterile detachment. He was part of it. He looked at it through eyes that were blurred with tears. That didn't make his understanding any weaker or diminish his power, but it showed me that he cared. What if Jesus was asking me to let him use the pain and the sorrow and the heartbreak of my losses to advance his kingdom and to bring glory to his name? Would I let him? That's a hard ask. But as I read John 11 and understood some of this, I realised he was asking through tears. By that, I mean that he was aware of the cost of this. He was conscious of the depth of his request, even as he was making it. 
He wouldn't force me to give it to him, but he was asking me to release my sorrow and my pain into his hand so that he could do something with it. He was asking me to trust him with my sorrow and with my pain. He was offering to redeem it as he shared in my sorrow, but he wasn't demanding it. I can still feel the air in the room where I was sitting when all of this was happening. It was still, silent and holy. My family were sleeping upstairs. I had been going through John 11 for weeks on my own, reading, thinking, praying, scribbling, reading, thinking, praying, scribbling, crying, actually sobbing a lot. I had learned so much in those weeks. My heart had been melted, broken and pierced. Use whatever image you like. On that morning I felt as if the world around me was being held at a distance. I had been thinking about the ideas that I'm expressing here for a few hours, allowing them to ferment in my mind and in my soul. Would I share my sorrow with Jesus and thereby share it with the world? The Apostle Paul, the veteran of suffering and pain, had learned how to share his suffering with God and with the Christian community. Let me read you 2 Corinthians 1 verses 3 to 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all consolation, who consoles us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to console those who are in any affliction with the consolation with which he, we ourselves are consoled by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are abundant for us, so also our consolation is abundant through Christ. If we are being afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. If we are being consoled, it is for your consolation, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we are also suffering. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our consolation. Paul recognised, I think, that in the sharing of his own pain and suffering, the believers around him would be strengthened and somehow given resolve. The question I was grappling with was whether I was willing or not to give God the sorrow and the pain that I had been carrying for months. I thought about the alternative. I could become bitter and angry. I could blame God for everything. I could turn my back on him. I could continue to carry this weight on my own. I could go back to having a form of godliness and denying its power to Timothy 3.5. I could lock God out of my pain and my sorrow and allowing my church and Christian community to become a show and a performance and a facade, just like Mac did in the shack. Or I could give God the sorrow I was carrying. I could share it with him. And there on my knees, sobbing in my study, I asked Jesus to share my sorrow. I opened my hands in front of me, tears streaming down my face. And I walked again through the loss and the pain and the confusion and the hurt. I paused at the points in my story where I have been afraid to pause before. I saw the still pale face of my dad on the morning of his burial. I felt the touch of my lips on his forehead. The only time I ever kissed him. And I let it all flow out of my wretched, broken, fractured yet beautiful, healing and held heart. And I prayed a prayer 
that has become one of the bedrocks of my life. Lord Jesus, I cannot hide this from you. I give you my brokenness and my pain. I share my sorrow with you. Please walk with me through this valley at the pace that will bring healing to me. Please hold me gently in your hands. Please deal tenderly with me. I am fragile. And I feel like I could easily break. I give you all of this. All of me. My questions, my uncertainties, all of it. From this moment on, please do in my life what will bring the greatest glory to your name. Amen. Jesus showed me through the story of Lazarus that death had been defeated. He showed me that death would not have the last word in my life or in the lives of any of those who trusted in him. The only way he could do that was by asking one of his friends and their family to go through death with him and out the other side. I realise that for me the other side is not yet here. My loved ones have died. I'm in the space between now and then. Mary and Martha waited four days. I have had to wait much longer. And all of us who have experienced grief and sorrow have had to wait so much longer. And sometimes the waiting is so very hard. You go to bed at night waiting and you rise the following morning still waiting. You go through anniversaries and birthdays waiting. You grew older day by day waiting. But Mary and Martha's four days assure me that my four days will pass. My loved ones are more alive than they have ever been. Each day for me is not only a day longer since I lost them, but I have come to accept and be thankful that it is another day closer to being united with them again. Death does not win. Life does. Despair does not win. Hope does. Sorrow does not win. Celebration will. I can share my sorrow with Jesus because he shares his life with me. And that makes all the difference. <laughs>